An estimated 3% of the world's population has chronic hepatitis C infection, which recently surpassed HIV infection as a cause of death. But in the relatively short period since the identification of the virus, there have been some major advances in treatment. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Raymond Chung, Vice Chief of the Gastrointestinal Unit and Medical Director of the Liver Transplant Program at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Chung has co-authored a perspective article on progress toward a cure for hepatitis C. Dr. Chung, hepatitis C virus, or HCV, has only been recognized for 25 years. In fact, many physicians remember the era of non-A, non-B hepatitis. Tell us a bit about the discovery of hepatitis C. What was known about hepatitis viruses previously, and what led to a viable approach to identification of this virus? Thank you for asking. The hepatitis C, as you have aptly pointed out, was known by the rather unattractive moniker of non-A, non-B hepatitis. We knew that it was distinct clearly from those versions of hepatitis by virtue of negative tests for A and B, but clearly a chronic liver disease picture uh, was produced in the setting of what we believed to be a viral agent at the time that led to the development of hepatic fibrosis, cirrhosis or irreversible fibrosis, and even death from liver disease and liver cancer. So it was clear that non-A, non-B hepatitis was a major clinical problem at the time. It had been recognized particularly in the context of receipt of blood transfusions that likely had been tainted by an infectious agent. So with the evidence that an infection was likely involved, much effort was expended on trying to identify the agent through originally traditional means of looking for a virus using direct visualization. These strategies, which had succeeded in a number of other viruses that preceded hepatitis C, really were not successful in this respect. Thus, it was really left to more innovative strategies. At the time, the use of so-called expression cloning, in which essentially material or serum samples from patients who were infected or presumptively infected were compared to samples that were not infected, presumptively felt not to be infected, and examined using an expression cloning approach in which RNAs were reverse transcribed back into so-called complementary DNAs or cDNAs. And it was from using this cDNA approach, cloning approach, where the differential appearance of proteins and sequences that were unique to those persons who were infected or presumptively infected uh, led ultimately to the description and discovery of a new agent that was not seen in those persons who were not infected. So this eventually led to the molecular cloning of what is now, of course, referred to as hepatitis C virus. And as you pointed out, this occurred only 25 years ago. You noted in your article that HCV was discovered to be a positive-stranded RNA virus that replicates its genome directly into RNA without traversing a DNA intermediate. Can you elaborate on that? What are the implications of that finding? That's a great question. We've discovered from its genome organization that hepatitis C is a member of the flavivirus family. And this family of viruses are so-called plus-strand or messenger RNA-sense strand RNA viruses. In this regard, the RNA genome of the virus is directly translated into a protein, in this case a long polyprotein, that is then cleaved into multiple mature peptides by both host and virally encoded proteases. 
One of those proteins is an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, which has no counterpart in the host cell. So by virtue of its name, it actually copies the genomic RNA strand directly into new RNAs, and those new RNAs become a template for yet new plus strand synthesis. So the first strand generated is a negative or antigenomic strand, and that serves as a template or a complementary template for the generation of new genomic or plus strand RNA. Nowhere in this picture is a DNA intermediate present, and that's a very important point because unlike retroviruses, which generate a DNA intermediate from an RNA genome, the absence of a DNA intermediate means that, at least for hepatitis C, there is no stable or latent form of virus that can be found migrating into the nucleus. So, for instance, for HIV, or for that matter, for hepatitis B virus, a hepatitis virus that has a DNA genome, those viruses have a very stable latent form that is found in the nucleus, and hence have made those viruses exceedingly difficult, or for that matter, impossible to this point, to fully eradicate. The absence of that DNA intermediate suggests that HCV, in contrast, must replicate for its very existence. It needs continuous viral genome replication in order to be maintained and sustained. Thus, the idea that an antiviral approach predicated on inhibiting the viral replication machinery, in theory, if applied for a sufficient period of time and if not marred by the emergence of resistant variants, uh, could, in theory, produce extinction of the virus. And this is the premise that has been tested not only in first-generation therapies, but certainly with the, the newest generations of treatments. The current standard of care, or what has been the standard of care for some time, is interferon alpha. What are the benefits and what are the downsides of that drug? Interferon has been a mainstay of therapy for what has now amounted to decades. And an interferon, interestingly enough, is a cytokine that is produced by our own immune system in response to viral infection. When administered in pharmacologically more robust doses, as is the case for interferon alpha, recombinant interferon alpha, we can induce what is, in essence, an antiviral state within our own cells. And this is through the action of interferon through its receptor of the triggering of a number of genes, in fact, hundreds of host genes, some of which contribute to a suppression of viral replication. Now, unlike directly targeted antiviral agents, Interferon is not directed against any specific sequence or protein or enzyme of the virus, but rather, as I've suggested, is more responsible for generating a heightened antiviral state within the cell. This has untoward collateral effects, unfortunately, because with that induction of those hundreds of genes comes, in fact, the elaboration of dozens of other cytokines, which can contribute to the collective sense of having flu-like symptoms, for instance, in which patients might feel myalgias or muscle aches, arthralgias or joint aches, headaches, fever, and general fatigue and lassitude. These are symptoms that one saw very frequently in the early days, in the early moments after interferon administration. But given over time, interferon can also result because of its other properties, including its anti-proliferative properties, and when combined with ribavirin, a nucleoside analog that can itself induce hemolysis or destruction of red blood cells, patients can develop lower white blood cell counts, platelet counts, or anemias for that matter. 
further complicating the feeling of fatigue that many of these patients might experience. And another important, I think, area of adverse events related to interferon was seen in the dimensions of the neuropsychiatric realm, that is to say, patients experiencing anxiety, depression, along with that fatigue that made the quality of life of these patients, quite frankly, difficult to endure. In your article, you point out some parallels between the evolution of HIV treatment and approaches to HCV treatment. What kinds of lessons have we learned from HIV? One thing that has been extremely important in learning from the annals of HIV therapeutics, if you will, has been the notion that success was likely not going to be achieved by taking a single of the newer antiviral agents directed against specific targets. A single target alone was likely not going to suffice. As we learned with HIV, resistance was an an early byproduct of that strategy, an unfortunate byproduct of that strategy in terms of selecting uh, resistant variants and essentially making that class of antiretroviral compounds less capable of being used subsequently. In the case of hepatitis C, I think when the first monotherapy studies of these direct-acting antivirals, in the case of the hep C-specific protease inhibitors, we saw that those early studies of using those agents alone quickly produced and selected for resistant variants within days. So it was fairly clear that that strategy of monotherapy was not going to work and that we were going to need to couple those direct-acting antivirals with other agents. So before there were other classes developed, that coupling, in essence, was first performed with interferon, the very same antiviral that had been in place for years prior. And the good news, at least with regard to interferon, is, number one, in a subset of patients, interferon can produce a sustained virologic clearance by virtue of its generation of that antiviral state I referred to a moment ago. And the other good news in this regard was that It is equally active against both wild-type virus and against resistant virus to protease inhibitors, just as an example, because, again, it's not working specifically on any one enzymatic or protein target in the virus, but is working, again, globally to create an antiviral state. That fact was leveraged then successfully to perform, if you will, piggyback studies in which the protease inhibitor was added to interferon and ribavirin in order to boost response rates that had been seen with interferon and ribavirin previously by another 25, 30, or 35%. And so this strategy, at least at the time, and this was in 2011, was able to enhance the rates of cure, sustained response, in persons harboring genotype 1 infection, the most common form of hepatitis C. Speaking of the situation worldwide, you noted in your article that the high cost of the newer treatments for HCV would seem to preclude their use in low- and middle-income countries. But in another perspective article that accompanies yours, Jaya Sakara and colleagues argue that providing treatment in poorer countries is potentially quite practical and it should be a priority of global funders. So what are your expectations for HCV treatment in the poorer parts of the world? I think this is an absolutely relevant point. We're now at a stage, an unprecedented stage really, where a finite course of truly effective therapy producing sustained response rates in excess of 90% for most patient groups can be applied in a tolerable manner, not requiring interferon injections, and bring about long-lasting clearance of infection. This is really unprecedented as we think about the history of chronic viral infections of man. So this is quite right. When we think about 170 million persons who are infected worldwide, 
not just the 5 million persons here in the United States, there is a global burden of disease that is likely to produce higher rates of not only chronic liver disease, but higher rates of liver cancer that is fully preventable. Those complications are fully preventable with the administration of these medications. So it is incumbent on collaboration of countries, providers, and pharmaceutical companies to enact delivery strategies that in many ways, again, mirror the history of the delivery of, of, of antiretrovirals for HIV. And I believe that given all that we've learned from the antiretroviral therapy delivery experience, that we will be able to come online much more robustly and much more expeditiously with a strategy that can, in essence, deliver an effective medication to the people who need them. Because it would be nothing short of a tragedy to realize that we had a cure in our hands but effectiveness was not being delivered because the medication wasn't being delivered to those who needed it. So we think it's a soluble strategy, but there are going to have to be many stakeholders who participate in bringing about those solutions. Taking a step back from treatment, what are the prospects for a vaccine? There are still efforts afoot to try to develop vaccines for hepatitis C, which is, of course, still a communicable disease, admittedly as a blood-borne pathogen rather than a fecal, oral, or respiratory transmission. That said, efforts still persist to try to develop immune-based strategies to provide protection against viral infection, and they are worthy of pursuit. But there still remain significant challenges with regard to the fact that the virus has, by virtue of its failure to correct its own errors when you look at the polymerase and its incorporation of nucleotides, there is a built-in error-prone or error generation rate that happens with each replication cycle that generates extraordinary sequence diversity, not only worldwide, but also even within infected individuals, such that the sequence diversity described between genotypes may be as high as 30%. So when one is designing a vaccine, there is an inherent challenge to design a vaccine that may have broad reactivity and broad protection. And this combined with the fact that Immune responses to hepatitis C in general tend to be more attenuated compared to other viral infections. Makes this, I think, a continued challenge for the future. Finally, what should practicing physicians in the United States know about HCV and do to help treat it, eradicate it? Perhaps the most important message to be transmitted is that hepatitis C exists. It is highly prevalent. It is seen in, as I suggested, to 5 million persons here in the U.S., and 170 million worldwide. It is a silent disease for the most part, having few symptoms, and unfortunately, those symptoms may not develop until late in the natural history of this disease when irreversible or end-stage liver disease have developed. So it is incumbent, I think, on all practitioners to be aware that hep C exists at such high prevalence, and indeed, hopefully, spurred by new recommendations to perform one-time screening on persons in the highest prevalence cohort, that group of patients born between the years 1945 and 1965, perform one-time birth cohort screening in those patients so that not only can those patients be identified and appropriate measures taken to evaluate them should they test positive for antibody to hepatitis C, but more importantly, brought to with the emergence of these dramatically improved treatments to care for management of that infection, and we would certainly expect and hope a postponement or prevention of, of any of the downstream complications of hepatitis C.
We think that this strategy will yield great fruit from the perspective of really stemming the development of the twin threats of end-stage liver disease, the need for liver transplantation, along with the risk for hepatocellular carcinoma or liver cancer, the fastest rising cause of cancer death in the world today. Thank you, Dr. Chung.